everyone, it's Antoinette Oglethorpe here, and I'd like to welcome you to this interview with Gregor Thane, who is Vice President, Global Talent and Leadership for Intercontinental Hotels Group. Gregor has a fascinating background. He started his career as a mechanical engineer and has worked in lots of different roles and lots of different sectors. So he's a really good understanding of the business challenges that organizations need to address and how leadership and talent development fits in with that. Hi, Gregor. Welcome to the call. Hi there. Thank you very much. So, Gregor, today we're going to talk about creating a mentoring culture to build leadership development across the business. But before we do that, can you tell everyone a little bit about your role at IHG and the specific challenges you've been facing in relation to talent and leadership development? Sure. So... IHG is a pretty large business. Um, when we think of all the people who work in our hotels, then we've got around 350,000 uh, colleagues, so quite a big population spread around the world. And we open a new hotel pretty much every day on average. So at that scale, that is one of the interesting uh, challenges with leadership and talent uh, that we face. So my role really looks from the front line up to the executive suite, uh, trying to develop our leadership today, but also the future leaders that we need to keep growing, um, whatever it is in the world, whether it's in our corporate teams or our hotels, and making sure that we're transforming our business through the talent development that we have, uh, becoming a more brand-led business than just a service-led business, and making sure we're able to really reflect the diversity of our guests in our leadership teams and in our hotels so that when we grow, when we uh, launch our brands into new areas, we really are doing it in a way that fits with the local cultures uh, and reflects the local diversity. Wow. So you've got brand challenges, you've got diversity challenges, and you've got scaling challenges. That's right. And... As you know, uh, you stay in one of our brands in a hotel. If you have a good experience, you then trust the rest of those uh, hotels in that brand a little bit more. If you had a bad experience, then it really does stay with you. So the execution from our talent in our hotels is such a big part, whether it's the service you get, the expertise they have um, in their job, it really does make a difference to our results. And are they all employees of yours, Gregor, or are yeah, there quite a lot of contractors? Or um, Well, our business is primarily a franchise model. So in our hotels, we either own the hotel, which is uh, very few of those that we actually do that, or manage the hotel where we provide a hotel manager. And so we run the hotel, but then the rest of the employees are generally employed by an owner, not by us. And there are purely franchised hotels where we don't employ any of the staff in the hotel at all, and it's run under license from us with our systems, with the support of our training and expertise, but without us employing the actual individuals in the hotel. Wow. Gosh, that's even more challenging then, isn't it? Yeah, that does lead itself to doing leadership development and talent management in a different way because you're really providing a service, um, much like an external provider might. So you really have to be able to show the benefit to an owner of the training and development that you want to do. 
and really demonstrate how it's going to help their bottom line. Uh, rightly, our owners are very focused on the uh, bottom line, and if we can't show how that, what we do makes that difference, then, you know, you don't get off the starting blocks. So, it's a slightly different mindset than normal in-house corporate planning and development is. So, yeah, it's interesting. Wow. So, Gregor, there's a lot of talk in leadership development about the 70-20-10 model, which says that 70% of learning happens through experience in the workplace, 20% happens through reflection on that experience in coaching and mentoring, and 10% takes place through formal classroom learning. Um, but it appears that organizations are still investing 90% of their time and effort in that formal 10%. Do, I mean, would you agree with that? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I do agree with that. I think that um, that's what I see. Uh, I do, there are lots of, uh, there's a lot of understanding of how experience building is really critical and the relationships that people have are critical. But I think people in big organizations find it difficult to systematize that and to see how you can drive that from a central learning and development position or as a senior leader. So I think that's why people tend to fall back on providing programs, um, e-learning or formal development. And and I can see also that that's easier to measure. You can measure that it's happened. You can measure satisfaction following it because you know who's uh, been involved and participated. And it's also, I think, still outside of HR circles, what people think development looks like. So mm-hmm. people recognize that they've been trained or developed if they've been on a program or taken an e-learning. And so it just feels that that's why it draws the focus from people in roles like mine because of of those things um, and I just think the ability to drive sort of mentoring experience building is just a little bit less uh, concrete mm. at the moment and therefore harder to get started maybe yeah I mean I guess you know it, it's something that people in leadership development can influence, they can purchase um, or commission a provider and, and take yeah. control of that, whereas actually influencing changes in behavior is much more difficult. And I think the word control is important there, what you said, because I think that it is harder to maybe feel that you can control um, the 70 and the 20, and um, everyone wants to feel they're able to impact in a measurable concrete way and uh, yeah I think the feeling of control is part of it as well. And so in your environment where you've got even less influence over the population because you know a significant majority don't actually report into the company um, how, how do you how, how do you bring this to life? What advice can you give people on on how we can bring the 70 20 10 model to life in practice um so i think there are lots of different ways and they're on a spectrum i think from the more systematic through to the more cultural um and it the starting point for us was to make sure we had a clear point of view 
for each level in the business what we expected from our leaders because if we couldn't articulate that, then how would we expect anyone to develop um, the skills that were required? So we put a lot of work into developing our leadership framework, which I know many organizations have done. So it's not rocket science in itself, but the way we went about it to really get the conversation going in the business about what's expected from our leaders um, and to stretch that by looking externally and saying, is that the level that we need our leaders to be at today? But what about the future? What would we need? And so really being ambitious about what we ask of our leaders and then being very clear with them that that is uh, what we expect. Um, I know a lot of leadership frameworks are quite an HR tool, quite hidden in the background, whereas we made it very user-friendly in 15 languages, running sessions so that people can explore it and make sense of it for themselves. And the process of creating it as well, making it very open, collaborative, so that you start the discussion from day one. And that in itself has made a huge difference because people can then self-manage their own development, but in a direction they believe is supported. Um, and within that framework, we've focused a lot on what the experience we expect people to have to operate well at that level or to mm-hmm. transition to the next level. So again, so the open people's eyes to the experiences that they could be uh, gaining, how they derive their career to get those experiences, and just pointing towards the relationships we think would help people develop as well. So the mentoring to try and offer or to uh, to have, the network to try and build across the business. Again, just opening people's eyes to what 17-2010 is and how they can make it work for themselves. So I okay, think that was so, kind of foundation of trying to bring it to life is making people understand it and have a guide to them and their own leadership. Right. So the so the framework really helped with that seventy percent detailing the experiences that um, you would expect leaders at different levels to have. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting discussion to say what are the especially at the most senior level. What are the critical experiences that, if you don't have them, you can't really progress to the next level, whether it's multi-country experience or whether it's having led global projects, just being very clear about the very short list of experiences that are must-haves. Just the process of agreeing those uh, really does flush out different perceptions about uh, what experience is critical or not. So so how did you... Um, have those conversations you know, thinking about your kind of huge scale that you're operating on what what was the kind of process that you followed to develop those um, we tried to make sure we covered all of our different regions and cultures so we asked our regional teams to run sort of focus group exercises with different populations so they ran uh, hotel manager and hotel group sessions they ran corporate group sessions to really get people's opinions across the world on what are the experiences, what is expected from our leaders. Um, and then we continue to go back to them with our drafts of it to just understand, are we saying it in a way that still makes sense for you or have we turned it into horrible HR speak? And quite often we thought we'd got it down to earth and then we'd be told, I still have no idea of what you're saying. So um, 
we have that tendency to turn things into corporate kind of lingo. And so yeah. we spent a lot of time undoing that and making it really down to earth. Um, and so we did that globally, but we also had a lot of interviews with our senior leaders to right. really understand what at this level does it look like for you, not just today, but what we need in the future. So using it as well to drive our talent strategy, not just for the leadership we need today. And then working a lot with external partners and assessment partners to say, are we on track with leaders at this level within our kind of competition or within the, uh, in the UK, be their FTSE 100 businesses? Are we aiming high enough? Are we stretching our leaders in our definition of what we need? Right. So it sounds like a massive exercise. How long did that take? It probably took uh, about eight months to okay. to do and to write and to publish and to translate and get out there. Um, and an interesting uh, snapshot was we then had the translations done um, and realized that the people translating had added all the corporate speak back in, <laughs> in the translated version. And so luckily, having quite a... a having quite a few people from different countries in my team, we could read it and say, hold on, that's, that's actually changed quite a lot. So we then had to colloquialise and get down to earth again, the translated versions, which took a lot longer as well, but was worth doing. It's a massive challenge, isn't it, to stop ourselves or, you know, get back into corporate and HR language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you said um, also that um, you were helping people identify you know, networks and relationships across the business. And, and so that's getting more into uh, the coaching and mentoring piece. Yeah. Um, you've talked about creating a mentoring culture. How is that different to a mentoring program? Yeah, good question. Um, so I see mentoring as, have, again, on a bit of a spectrum from very formal mentoring, which is where it's been set up for a particular uh, group or it's... Uh, got a particular purpose in mind, whether it's developing high potentials or technical mentoring. And at the other end of the spectrum, real day-to-day advising and um, supporting people who are in your network. And we wanted to drive quite a lot of informal mentoring so that people could feel they could access um, people with expertise that would help them without it being too formalized, too much barriers in the way of just making it happen, as well as driving real clarity about more formal mentoring at the same time. So we created a simple guide to mentoring that was all about helping people feel comfortable and confident to get started. So making it feel very down to earth so that um, it wasn't about the hierarchy. It was just about finding someone who's got an experience that would help you if they could share it. And by doing that and by creating it uh, into a small webinar, which we then ran multiple times around the world and then recorded and just made available, we just helped a lot of people understand what mentoring is and isn't so that they felt it was something they could do, either because they could offer mentoring um, or that they would benefit from it. And we trained people together so that we didn't say, here's 
the training to be a mentor and here's the training to be a mentee. We did it together so that both sides heard the same story. Um, and it would allow them to almost feel that that training had given them something to talk about in the first place. Um, and we found that that drove a lot of appetite for just getting on and self-managing and uh, making mentoring happen, happen in your area for yourself, um, which is great because really I think the best mentoring is when someone has found someone themselves, that person's agreed to do it, and it's a very local relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, what we wanted to avoid was huge matching of uh, mentees and mentors centrally controlled which would then take a huge amount of our time and effort, but also just be a real lag in the process mm. for people mm. to get started. Yeah, it would be a massive, massive yeah. exercise, wouldn't it? And it would be the illusion that we'd be able to do it well, um, yeah. when the best person to know is the individual, or then yeah. the next layer up, which is their manager, or then colleagues of their manager. So we try to show the steps to go through to find someone, starting with yourself and radiating out. Um and so how do you know whether it's happening or not? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I think uh, we don't know is the answer. We <laughs> suspect that um, a lot of it's happening because of the interest we get, the comments we get, the um, amount of times our guide is downloaded or the web fix is um, accessed. Oh, that's um, an interesting metric. Yeah, I mean, it's not hard because it doesn't show that they've then done something with it. But it yeah. does show that they were interested enough to go that far. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have more formalised mentoring, which we've attached to our, pro- our development programmes. So we have made sure that mentoring features in all of our global programmes. And then in our talent management um, processes, making sure that the clear expectation to support our um, high potentials and high performers in different regions to offer mentoring to them but also that the expectation that they will offer mentoring to a certain number of people each as well um, is built in as a formal agreement. So we're trying to drive the formal side to balance also the informal side but make it seem easy to get going. Uh, Mm. And what I think people found really useful was knowing what mentoring wasn't Mm. For a lot of people, they were mixing it up with being an executive coach mm. um, or a counsellor or something. They just were scared they'd get in too deep and couldn't really handle those mm. conversations. So we made it very clear the boundaries to mentoring, how it's very linked to what you do day to day as a manager, but you'd be doing it without that management responsibility for people outside of your team. Um, mm. So that seems to land with people because it just made it seem like something you could start and be, be good at without too much soul searching or uh, well, two years of professional training. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we always say look, the hard thing about proper exec coaching is not being able to offer your opinion, trying to be very clean about keeping you, you and your ego out of it. Whereas yeah. mentoring is a bit easier because and we do want you to ask a lot of coaching questions, but you can also share your opinion. So that takes the hard bit about coaching away from it, yeah, uh, yeah. which seems to have helped people. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds as though you've done um, a good job in kind of developing this culture of 
um, employees taking ownership for their development, which I know you know a lot of organizations struggle with um but what about the manager? What role does the manager have to play in all this? Still a very important role um and everything we do, we try and reinforce the relationship between the manager and the people in their team um because we think that's really a sacred um relationship for everything that happens outside of um, the team for development. So, for example, whilst we run global programs, we also run manager briefings for the participants, managers before they start, so they feel included, they understand what's going to happen, and we're clear with them the support they need to play throughout it, um, and the stages where it'll be most critical for them to really um, support so we do try and make sure that that is never um, bypassed or uh, taken for granted. Um, we are doing a lot of work now, actually, to really help managers have the right conversations with the people in their team around their development, around their career, around talent and assessing potential, um, and, re- and about driving performance as well, and, and a real focus on the capability of managers to have those conversations well to feel comfortable to have them, to practice the language that goes with it, just so that we drive more of those conversations um, to happen. Because, yeah, we want people to feel self-sufficient, but in partnership with their manager, not just uh, out on a limb on their own. Mm. And so, um, I mean, that's great. So we've talked about the 70%, the leadership framework helps with that. We've talked about the 20% in terms of the, the mentoring and the importance of relationships. And you also mentioned, you know, you do still have um, training programs and more formal development. That's right. And um, and we have a few principles that we have for those, uh, which are that we make sure each of our programs is really aligned to one of the leadership transitions, whether it's from going to be a manager for the first time or to go from being a manager of a team to a manager of managers, really thinking what's the difference that's needed at that point uh, that people need either new capability or a change in perspective on and focusing it there so that we have a, a path of programs that take you through each of those transitions. but. Mm are not repeated. They're only for the spot where they are most useful. And that's quite an efficient way we found of going about it. You're not trying to make programs that fit for everyone. Um, You invest when people most need the help, which are at those transitions. And you you can do things quite easily like that globally. So you've got a real consistency across the world and people go through a similar experience across the world. Um, so you start to build up a bit of an alumni at each point. Um, but we also make clear what's the 70, 20, 10, not just the formal stuff, at each transition as well. So you know when you can have support from a coach at a transition or when you have access to our senior leader community of practice, for example. And it's just very clear on a page for people to see what what's there for them in the future, how they'll be supported throughout their whole career, which I think is a very attractive thing to have because 
whilst it's maybe not something you can access now, you want to see that should you get there, you're going to be helped. There's more to come. It's not all one big thing and it's done. So that's been uh, well received. Mm, that's a good point. I, you know, I know a few people who have always known they've been groomed for the next stage and then as they go through it, there's no support for them and they're like, well, this has been planned for a while. Um, mm. So I think that is important. And, um, I mean, you said at the beginning that one of the reasons why um, there was there's a focus on the 10%, um, a disproportionate focus on the 10% is because that's what people recognise as development. Now that you focused more on the 70% and 20%, do you think your employees are recognising that more as development now? Um, hmm. I think they are, because I think we've changed the conversation we're having to be less about what training have you had, but more what experience have you had. And so I think access to roles or uh, progression in succession plan is more overtly about experience. Yeah. And uh, so that just changed, I think, people's perceptions a bit uh, of what to gain. Um, also, even in our formal programs, we've been very careful that every program is a blend of 70-20-10. Right. So even if it's our first-line training, most of the program is practice having someone watch you, having feedback on doing it, um, and that kind of cycle of learning something, practicing it, being it being reviewed. And we're really clear, even in the programs, why that is. So I think people are just starting to see that access to the right experiences is the valuable thing to get. And the more people look for that and try and get that, then the pressure's on us to be able to help provide it, which is great because it's, it's driving things in the right direction. And do you think your managers are, are being creative enough in terms of providing those experiences within a role, say? Uh, not yet, I'd say. I think it's a capability that we need to keep building um, because I find that even if people understand the importance of experience and they get the 70-20-10 approach, they do find it hard to, in practice, say, this person needs to develop this capability, here's the experiences that would help do it. I think yeah. because we spend all day thinking like this, it becomes a bit easier, but if it's not your core role, it's quite hard to, like you say, think creatively. Um, it's easier to do it if you think about another role that someone could have. Mm -hmm. But for most people, that's not an option. It's not about having a new role every time you want a new capability. So, like you say, the creativity to think, with the current role you've got, how would we do that? Um, how would we stretch that role? How would we make you do it in a different way? How would you put you with other people to do it? So you would have a different experience, even though it's the same role or even the same thing you did before, but we want you to do it in a different way. And and I think that's just something we need to get better at helping managers explore. We have in the past uh, provided guidance to say for these quite common areas of development, here's some ideas to just stretch you in thinking about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it's more to do. Um, 
Another area I think is untapped is how managers can give away some of their responsibilities, mm. even if it's temporarily, to help develop the people in their team. Um, you know, it happens when people, when managers are off sick and suddenly mm. someone has to step up. But how mm. about doing it when you're not sick? How do you do that in a way that supports someone to do it um, so they're not just in at the deep end, but also gives them the real experience of some of those more senior uh activities. Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. And so um, my final question, Greg, is always a really difficult one for people in our field. Yeah, how do you measure the impact of, of this? How do you, you know, it all sounds great intuitively yeah. for us, you know, it makes perfect sense. But, um, you know, you said your franchisees need to see the return on the bottom line. How do you demonstrate all of that? Um, I, I think it's hard to have a blanket way of measuring so we're trying to be quite tailored for each of our programs uh, to measure the impact we expect to see uh, for example our first line program we are looking at retention rates in our hotels which because of the quite transient nature of quite a lot of hotel staff is quite high so how do we improve that uh, engagement survey results across the whole business using things like that to try and have a tangible measurement of some of those programs. But then at a more senior level program, for example, where people are undertaking a project as part of it, then looking at the ROI of that project, looking at what they've delivered within the life of the program and really seeing some of the benefits from that. Mm. In the 70 percent so the experience side how do we measure that is really uh that's a bit harder because it's less formalized and where we see it show up is in the strength of our succession plans and that is something we measure we have a global measure of our succession plan strength for each role um, and we task ourselves with improving it every year and that's where it shows up is have people got the experience to be more ready now than they were and we track that progression and whilst it's hard to attribute it just to what we've done from a development side, it is because generally they've had more experience or a broader experience that's been recognised. Um, so it, oh, yeah, that's, it's a, tricky. that's a great idea. Yeah, um, and I guess that's then a vicious cycle, if you like. That um, you know, because quite a lot of people identify their successes and then don't necessarily do very much to help them improve their readiness. Um, right. So the experience helps them do that, and then the strength of the succession helps prove the effectiveness of the experience. And that's been one of the nice things about looking after leadership and talent for ISG is really joining up some of these things uh, mm. to be able to measure the impact across both. Uh, and just seeing some things like it's it's great to measure succession strength, uh, but that gives you a static picture and. Mm it doesn't mean that those plans would ever come to life. Uh, mm. What we're really keen on is also measuring have we appointed people when those roles have come up and have people become more ready year on year as per the plan? Mm. Because I've seen time and time again in businesses, people on plans who are said to be ready in two years and in two years they're still ready in two years. Mm. Uh, yes. And the yes, plan is exactly. still strong. It still looks like a great plan, but no one's moved forward. and. 
that is the movement from uh, talent management to real talent development. Yeah. Um, and taking people's careers and the experience they get seriously. So, so yeah, joining those things up, I think, hints at a measure that shows how some of the leadership development's working. That's brilliant. Gregor, that's been fascinating. I could talk to you all day, um, but that's been fabulous. I think it will really help people think about what they can do in practice and how maybe they can move from a focus on training courses to more of the 70-20-10 model and a larger focus on experience and mentoring. So thank you so much for your time. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to everyone listening to this interview. If it's triggered any questions or comments that you'd like to share, please email me at Antoinette at AntoinetteOglethorpe.com or post a comment on my blog. Bye for now.